0: Hello, and welcome back to this very special bonus episode of the podcast, A Life Less Ordinary, with me, Sophie Elwiz. My guest is Alexandra Adams, who was my original guest on the first series of the podcast, and really one of the inspirations behind starting it. Alexandra is a medical student, and recently had to switch to the other side... Um, In the last couple of years she spent 17 months in hospital. During that time in hospital Alexandra has been through some completely shocking things. Um, I really couldn't believe it when I heard so I thought it would be really good to get her to come back on to share those experiences with some more people Um, and also true to form to share her learnings. and her advice that she's gained from that horrible horrible time just a bit of a trigger warning some of the stuff that alexandra is talking about around medical stays and medical care is really quite shocking um so just be aware and please switch off if it's triggering for you Alexandra. Sophie. (laughs) Great to have you back. It's so good to see you. What an an absolute joy to have you in my flat face to face after some time. It's just been a crazy, crazy time. And I brought tea as well. You brought tea and it has not disappointed. I just had a sip of
1: of, what what was the tea? It's toast and jam. Yorkshire tea. I've just come back from Leeds. So I thought, well,
0: pretty convenient. And uh, yeah, I'm hooked. It's good. I'm enjoying it, you know. I think I might <laughs> go and pick up a box myself. <laughs> so I mean, where do we start really? Um, you know, it's been it's been quite since we recorded it really. I mean, mm. you were my first guest. Yeah. The absolute you know, the word inspiration is sort of you know, it's a funny one, but truly you were the inspiration behind me doing the podcast. And we we recorded it um like not long before lockdown. We no, we were in a no. studio um, and then it was lockdown, yeah. and then things went topsy turvy. Some did. would say,
1: I think that's an understatement, really. I mean, on the podcast front, I mean it, that's that's just gone on a completely different level, and it's amazing. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of just disappeared off the radar um, almost. It, it, but it has—it's been a, a crazy two years for everyone, and I think everyone experienced different kind of battles, different hurdles, um, you know. But yeah, for me, it was. I mean even just trying to think about how to say say it, it it's bringing a lot back and it was life changing for me it was a huge chapter um and it has left me with a with a lot of trauma, but also a lot of perspective and a lot of kind of i've learned a lot of lessons and you know and they they say that you know that saying what doesn't kill you makes you stronger and I think that's kind of kind of applicable for a lot of us mm. for the, the last two years
0: i mean i I know sort of more or less kind of what was what was going on, not in mm. detail, but I know that you were in hospital for yeah. seventeen months right yeah yeah tell me a little bit about kind of about it's a huge huge thing but can you kind of explain to people who don't know who weren't necessarily following you yeah what what was kind of happening
1: well it was it was well with everything to do with me it was nothing was straightforward um but I had I had some chronic illnesses going on in the background but at the time they weren't really diagnosed and I was just I think because I was so crazy busy doing everything else on the side of medical school I didn't really address it But obviously things got worse in lockdown and I was obviously shielding as someone on the vulnerable list. And the last place you want to go is to the doctor or the hospital, because that's at the time was where you were going to most likely catch COVID. Um, And so I just in a way just ignored all my symptoms, but to the point that I deteriorated big time and... Yeah, I ended up in for seventeen months. I couldn't, I couldn't eat. I lost all the ability to go to the toilet. Um, I was completely bed bound. I was so weak, losing weight. Um, and then I was diagnosed with a rare condition called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, and a few uh, conditions that were associated with with EDS for short, um, including mast cell. Activation syndrome, um, POTS or postural tachycardia syndrome, gastroparesis, intestinal failure. So, you know, all these things were happening. Um, but, you know, it was strange because up until I got this diagnosis or the diagnoses, um, it was interesting to see how the doctors treated me. Um, and it wasn't necessarily in a best way possible, um, I think, obviously, because what i was suffering from wasn't textbook they just maybe assumed that some of it was in my head or they didn't really take me seriously and that had a huge huge impact on the care that i got because i wasn't taken seriously i mean i got i got sepsis seven times in that in those 17 months and a lot of those times they were left to get to the point where they were just they were life threatening because they just would not listen or take seriously my, when I was saying, well, you know, something's sore, or I'm feeling a bit unwell, and, you know, had a temperature and whatever, and then he just ignored it. Um, and then I, and then I think the icing on the cake, or the cherry on the cake was, was when I got COVID, when I was in the hospital, and that just changed everything. Um And it's something that psychologically, I'm still trying to get over now. So it's been, it's been difficult. It, and, you know, like, like you quite rightly say, there's just, there's no way of saying it so briefly um, but that's kind of just scraping the surface of what, mm. what happened over that period
0: mm. I know sort of from I've seen you a few times since and um, you know the first time we saw each other we had a you know when we were going to go for a walk and yeah. we ended up just going to a coffee shop We for a <laughs> little bit of a walk and we went to a coffee shop and just like like talk talks yeah. through I think they were closing I think they had to tell us like <laughs> we're closing now and we Surprise, were just like oh froze. the time <laughs> And, and and a big part of that conversation and that was kind of you were fairly not fresh from hospital necessarily, but it was the first time we'd seen each other yeah. in quite a while. And during the time, you know, that you were in hospital and things, you know, you kind of went off the radar a little mm. bit, obviously, mm. you know, if you're kind of dealing with that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I yeah wasn't really sure of what was going on but mm. really the message that I was getting afterwards when I saw you was really just about that the yeah. treatment that you got and your experience there which is just yeah devastating and if
1: anything I mean yeah it was it was raw but like I said to you then it if anything it was harder when I came out of hospital because even though you know there were times where I was being gaslit and kind of dismissed and you know we weren't really getting anywhere with my care. It was when I came out of hospital, when I'd kind of just slipped from the system, I was back out in the community after pretty much two years of being completely dependent and bedbound, that it was actually the hardest point, because I'd, I'd gone from being this kind of this busy bee, so to speak, you know, running around the UK. doing this, this and this, and having goals and and you know dreams and and working on them, and then being hit by this life-changing illness and obviously the pandemic which you know from within the hospital walls i didn't really experience much of in in the outside world um but yeah and then kind of coming out and not being able to to walk long distances not being able to you know i wasn't in medical school at that point and i was i was genuinely waking up with no purpose and that that was the worst and it made me so low so so low and and I think it was really difficult because i I had an interview the other day on um channel Four's deaf's Pat Lunch, and one of the questions was, Well, you know you always seem so optimistic and positive you know how have you always been like that? And I said, Well, no, no one can be optimistic and positive all the time um and I think for me, it was a case of well being a deafblind medical student and you know being someone with disabilities and having to navigate a very ableist world at times I always come up with solutions I'm always able to kind of get myself out of the the rut and and resolve situations but in this case I genuinely did I couldn't see a way out and I genuinely thought it was the end of of everything I'd worked so long and hard towards and yeah, I mean, I could go off tangent mm. for a long time, but it, it was tough. It was really, really tough.
0: I mean, what you're saying, you know, when you were there, it's its literally out of your control, you know. Mm. Obviously, kind of, you know, health. Obviously, the, the pandemic was completely, that was out of all of our controls. Mm. But, you know, mm. your health, you know, when you're kind of going on, you know, down a hole like yeah. you were, mm. you know, and it must be even more frustrating with, the kind of the knowledge you have you know as as a medic
1: yeah yeah i um, mean yeah. being a medical student and a patient was again probably one of the hardest things and there were there were many times where i thought well you know it's made me more determined than ever to get back to medical school and and to become a doctor because you know i saw i saw how there still needs to be so much more education and advocacy when it comes to you know, sort of the patient's control, the patient's life, um, you know, especially when it comes to young people with chronic illnesses and life-changing illnesses or injuries or anything like that. But then on the complete other end of the spectrum, I did have days where I just wanted to run away from medicine altogether mm. for the rest of my life, because the treatment I did get at times was, you know, inexplained. It was, it was awful. It was unforgivable. And it's so hard because... Again, you know, when I, especially when I was I had COVID and I was on the COVID ward, and I knew because obviously being a medical student, the, these nurses, these doctors, they were my colleagues at the end of the day. Because actually, at the beginning, I was in the hospital where I I often train, and so I, because I knew the situation they were going in, uh, going through personally, I almost stepped back and didn't want to ask for help when really, as a patient, I really needed to. Mm. And that was really that was really difficult because, you know, where, where do you stand when you're kind of you've got two roles and you're in, you're in two different capacities? Um, you know, And I kind of did at times kind of leave myself just to kind of stay silent and suffer.
0: Yeah, I remember you talking about that and particularly about your experience of COVID. Mm. I wonder if if you can give us an example. And, you know, I understand that it, it's kind of traumatic. And if mm. you don't want to talk about the experience of COVID, Totally understand, but mm. you're talking a bit about your kind of experience and and the sort of the the treatment that you've received mm. from what is your colleagues. Yeah. Can you yeah. give me like an example of? Of, of course. Of I mean, like again, that?
1: it just it's it's so difficult because it was terrible, it was inexcusable. um But at the same time, you know, I'm I'm it makes me scared to have to to talk about it from the patient point of view because I'm sure on the grand scheme of things, none of this was, was intended in a malicious intent. Um, but I was, I was in hospital for Christmas, which, you know, as, as it was, was devastating. Um, But I think it was like the day after or two days after Christmas, Christmas Day, that um, I was just really unwell and I just couldn't put my finger on it. And um, they tested me and and I came back positive. And I remember the patient next to me, she just kind of said, oh, it's all your fault. You've caught COVID and now you've got to spread it to the rest of us. And of course, I ended up having to go up to the COVID ward and and whatnot. And, you know, I I saw and experienced death, you know, left, right, front, back. And, you know, there was there was one night where there was only one agency nurse and one HCA to the whole ward, which is dangerous, really, really dangerous. And, you know, there was one time when I, at the time I had a massive, um, it's called a Riles tube and it was basically a really big chunky tube that goes up my nose, down the back of, you know, my throat, into my stomach and it basically drains it because I was vomiting so much, um. And because of my ehlers loss, I dislocate a lot. So my joints and so my hip joint and my shoulder joint had just popped out and I was in a lot of pain. And I was so weak and bed-bound that they they had to roll me over regularly. So I'd press the call, the call bell, you know, because I dislocated. I was in a lot of pain and I needed to change mm. position. And I'd been waiting sort of 20 minutes or so Um And the pain just got so bad, Sophie, that I was retching. I was like vomiting from the pain. And um, because of that, I then vomited up this tube that was, you know, in my nose. But it kind of was kind of hanging in. It was half in, half out. So although it was out my stomach, it basically coiled up at the back of my throat. And so because of that, I couldn't breathe. And I could just feel my whole face was just like, you know, getting tighter and turning purple and I was panicking. Mm. Um so I was just pressing the call bell, obviously still waiting. Um and eventually they came in, saw what was going on, pulled it out and and then they turned me onto my front, um, so that I was less likely to to dislocate. But the position they put me in, I couldn't I had no, you know, my, my call bell nor my phone were in reach. And then they shut the doors again because obviously because of infection control. And shortly after this, um, the tea lady came and she said, oh, are you thirsty? I said, I'm gagging. I'm so, so thirsty. And I was so embarrassed because I was, my catheter, I had a catheter in and it had leaked everywhere. I, it was also about time of the month. So I had blood everywhere. I'd vomited, um, you know, obviously that hadn't been cleaned up. And so I was basically sloshing around in all sorts of bodily fluids that were just going cold. And then the tea lady comes in and I'm like, "Mm." Mm. you know, and there was such a, you know, because of the COVID wars and restrictions with, um, sharing resources and stuff, we had a shortage of bed sheets, um, gowns, pillowcases, towels. So for a few days I was basically in the nude. I had nothing on in the middle of winter. Um, and I wasn't on a bed sheet, but just like the plasticky mattress. Um, so anyway, going back to the tea lady, she she gave me my my coffee, just poured fresh from the kettle, um, and obviously put it in a beaker because I was too weak at that point to be picking up a mug. Um, but instead of putting it on the table, she put it within my reach, so she put it on the bed next to me. Well, of course, when she left and I tried to get my coffee, I knocked it over. So I now had hot boiling coffee just dribbling down the front of me when I'm in the nude you know, just mixing in with everything else that's already in the bed, and I'm screaming. I'm saying "hot, hot," you know, please, someone. Mm-hmm. But but no one could hear me, and I couldn't get my call bell. And I was, I just had to lie there. And you know, eventually, when the nurses did come back in, I said, "Please, do you mind just five minutes just to clean me up?" And they said, "You do realize that there are people dying out there?" And I said, "I do. I honestly do." Um, and I just felt really guilty for asking for help. And it goes back to that whole, you know, maybe I should just be quiet. But the patient next to me, um, obviously, they all had COVID and she died. She died in her sleep um, because they were so rushed off their their feet, you know, to no fault of their own. It was literally just the hospital was drowning, drowning in COVID that Christmas. And um, it wasn't until the following morning that they came in, you know, saying, Oh, do you want porridge, toast? And this lady didn't respond, and they'd realised that she she'd slipped away, and and I and then I just thought, oh my gosh, how long have I been lying next to a dead patient, you know? And you know, very quickly, you know, when I was on the previous ward before I was moved up to to the COVID area, the three other patients that were on that bay with me, who I you know got to know over the many weeks, um, they came up. So obviously they'd caught COVID. I don't know whether it was from me or from just. The ward in general, um, but long story short, I was the only one who made it back to the gastro oh ward, and and that is something that still, you know, when I when I say it now, it still gives me goosebumps, and it's horrible because I'm. It's almost like a survivor's guilt, and I know it's not my fault, but you know, I, I couldn't control that, but you know, you still you still live with that kind of guilt and regret and thinking was it my fault was it me who passed covid on to them and am I the reason that they didn't make it and um yeah it's just it was horrific
0: I mean you know covid was everywhere at that Mm, point you know chances are it was through an HCA that was carrying it but wasn't testing positive kind of thing it was don't know far more rife than we
1: yeah it, it was just, and it was such an awful time for everyone. And, you know, like you said, I, I mean, I was bed bound, so I, it wasn't like I was going off the ward or anything. I was in that same bed for all those many months. And so, like you said, just no one knew. I mean, thing is, with the staff shortages as well, you know, that the staff may have been asymptomatic or they may have been feeling slightly under the weather, but because they were sh- so short of staff, they couldn't, you know, not come in. Um... But yeah, like I said, it was it was that time when literally the whole hospital was just drowning in it. And it was it was inevitable. It really was. Mm. I mean, at that point, every single ward in that hospital became a red zone. You know, there was no way to escape from it really. I mean, what you
0: know, what you're saying is just completely I, I have no words really. Mm. Only that, you know, that that sort of thing, it stays with you, yeah. you know, for both patients and you know staff as well
1: Mm, mm. I mean I feel bad for the staff the staff had to deal with it day in day out I mean yeah okay I was in for 17 months but I've had I've been able to sort of come away from that and you know excuse the pun but obviously being deafblind I was able to you know I did have the option of switching off you know I could Mm -hmm. just take my hearing aids out or just shut my eyes but you know when you're in such close quarters with other people who are suffering in so many ways you have no idea about it it was just And, you know, it was also because of the restrictions, I couldn't see my family for months as well. So I couldn't, and I couldn't, in a way, tell them everything of what was going on, because then they're going to be worried at home, unable to do anything. And, you know, it it has lived with me. And I've desperately, desperately tried to get psychological help. You know, I said, when I went back to the ward, the general ward that I was on, I just said, look, please, I've... I've seen some horrific things, um, I'm really, really shaken, I need to talk to, you know, talk to a psychologist or a counsellor, and they just said, you know, we don't have time, you're not, you're not eligible for psychological support, and, and I just thought, you know, it was just disgusting. And then I was transferred to St George's in London, um, so halfway through the admission, um, directly via ambulance, just for more specialist treatment. And I thought maybe I could use that as an opportunity to bring up that question again, you know, can I can I speak to someone? And I couldn't, I just did not get any help. And that's why I think I ended up in such a deep, dark hole at the beginning of, of 2022, because I'd come out of hospital after that horrific period in my life with no ability to have closure, no no one to kind of offload to because you know like i said i don't want to offload to my own family because they've been through so much themselves um you know in an indirect way and so yeah my mental health just took a massive plunge and i've not had help for it and i've just somehow just managed to find myself you know kind of in a almost in a kind of a dimension where i'm i'm not i'm not happy but i'm not sad either i'm just just getting on with it I've accepted it that that's that's something that happened in my life and I'm trying to move on from it
0: you know what you said a minute ago around you know when you requested some mental health support Mm. some psychology support something you know you're not eligible for it I mean what does that say you know all humans need to to look after their Mm. their mental (laughs) mental health yeah you know it's not it's not a matter of eligibility no I, I don't think it's not you know it's kind of like where's the equality in that if some people are, are eligible for it and others aren't
1: I know I know and, and it really upset me because you know going back to the whole thing of about being a positive and optimistic person in general you know I got so bad at this point I had you know volunteered I had you know myself I mean it's difficult to ask for help Mm -hmm. if you've got mental health issues as it is you know people are almost ashamed and embarrassed and they kind of just brush it to one side but I was that bad I was at the point where I was actively saying every morning please please help me Mm -hmm. and no one would and so I'm thinking well how many other people have been in that situation I mean even before I had COVID Having my diagnosis of, of Ellis danlos syndrome, I mean, I knew of it. Mm. I knew I'd heard of it, um, but I didn't know much about it because in medical school, as, as a rare condition, we do not get taught it. So, like myself, most other doctors hadn't a clue what it was, what it involved. But I was I was scared. I was, you know, thinking, What well, what does this mean for my prognosis, my future? What does this mean now? And, again, couldn't really too much to my family who were 200 miles away from me and I just remember saying to this doctor I said please would it be okay if if one of you sat down at some point and just kind of just took me through what what this means and they basically just said well you're a medical student surely you're competent enough to work it out yourself and that was the that was that was it that was the end of and there I am expected to just you know plod on and and except that this was my new life-changing diagnosis and that was it and yeah I'm still here today (laughs) trying to work it out day by day yeah like
0: like many others with chronic conditions Mm. yeah yeah I mean I know social media is a real there's a real kind of community on there for everyone really but you know Chronic health conditions is is certainly the spoonie community. Absolutely, <laughs> I yeah. <don't> want to <laughs> I, mean, start, I mean that was the first wrong <laughs> here because I'm not necessarily in in it, so I don't want to say the wrong thing. But
1: but no, that was the first time I heard of the whole thing about spoons being a kind of a an, an analogy for energy currency, and it
0: makes sense. Te- explain it to me. I don't know. W- what So it means. basically,
1: like if you say, "Well, I've run out of spoons today," it, it's kind of like a measuring. Um, reference to how much energy you have left or how much energy you are able to use so if I said oh well I'm I'm going to go and do a podcast recording with Sophie I need to make sure I've got enough spoons for the day or if I couldn't make it I'm mean, sorry Sophie I I don't have any spoons left mm-hmm. you know it's, it's weird but then when you, when you start using it yeah, more for sure. it, it makes sense but you know, I refer to myself as a zebra as well, which a lot of people in the chronic illness community do. And um, it's because, it, well, it derives from the whole idea of um, in medicine, we are taught if we hear hoofbeats behind us, don't assume it's a zebra, assume it's a horse, because that is the most likely thing. That's going to be the common thing you see behind you. Um, but the problem is, is that when you do come across a zebra, i.e., the patient, um, the the treatment we often get particularly as young female patients I don't know what it is but definitely that demographic we are we're we're just treated as if it's all in our head or we're exaggerating or we're dramatic or it's down to our periods or our emotions our hormones and it's so wrong and I think I remember doing a I did a I wrote a blog post on one of the days that I was feeling you know well enough to sit up in bed I did try and keep keep up with my writing and i think i was just so angry about that that whole thing i did do a post on that at some point and um but it's true you know if you think about you know women who suffer from endometriosis i mean the number of years it takes to be diagnosed with that because you're just dismissed i mean i read an article um i forget where now but there was it was basically about um A young woman in her i think she was like 30 or or 40 and it was post-mortem so she died um and she'd essentially um she she was just scarred with endometriosis and all this time she'd been going back and forth to the doctors apparently and she'd been dismissed you know dismissed
0: it's crazy that i remember hearing a talk a little while ago um and I don't I can't remember the specifics so I'm not going to talk much about it but um it was kind of around chronic conditions it was it was a talk and and basically he was talking about kind of the history of diagnosing he was talking about functional neurological disorder mm. um, and the kind of history of that and how it sort of was put down to kind of neur- neurosis and, mm. and, and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, again, that thing about, you know, young women. Mm. Um, it's backwards, isn't yeah. it, that you're experiencing? Yeah. You know? I mean,
1: I just think, you know, there was, was a middle-aged man with the condition, you know, and, and Ellis Danmels affects anyone, you know, and it's a genetic thing. So you're technically born with it, but you know, your symptoms might not show until your mid twenties. Um again, I don't know enough about it because ironically no one sat me down to talk about it. Um so I don't want to sort of be giving out any false information. Um but, you know, if it was a a middle aged man, then they would really they would look at every avenue and, you know, they would support that person, most likely Mm. until they had that diagnosis. And you know, and then they would get the support thereafter. But, you know, like you say, if you're a young... And I I was one of a few people, actually, on on my ward at the time who were also young female patients who had rare conditions that weren't in the textbook. And they were just... They were not having a good time of it. And actually, a lot of us were transferred to other hospitals because the team there just didn't didn't know. I mean, like I said, you know, it goes back to the whole thing of, of not being taken seriously... I, I basically, I had a a central line, which is a a line in your neck, a big cannula that goes directly to the. It gives you access to your heart, basically. And um, I was being fed so total parental nutrition or TPN, which is basically you get all your nutrients being delivered straight to your bloodstream. um, If other forms of feeding doesn't doesn't work, and this was before I had a a line uh, surgically inserted into my chest. Um, and I had an agency nurse one evening come to access my line. Now, agency nurses aren't allowed to deal with central lines because you need additional training. It's a very sterile um, technique. And I just kind of said, you know, had I not been a medical student in this position, like, I me not I wouldn't have known Mm. um but I obviously knew in this situation that she wasn't allowed to do what she was about to do and so I just said politely I said you know I'm I'm sorry to be rude but you know I know that this is meant to be aseptic and she just said to me she said do you want your TPN or not and she just rolled her eyeballs at me and 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 then I kind of immediately as you often do as a patient you feel very powerless you know, at the end of the day, you're you're kind of in bed, you can't get out, you can't move and you just let them do their job. So I just kind of went silent and let her fiddle around with my central line, knowing too well that she didn't have gloves on, she was picking stuff off the floor, um, you know, using my lap as a sterile field, um, you know, in quotation marks. Um, and anyway, a few days later, I was getting a really, really sore neck around my, my central line. And um, I could feel it was slightly warm, it was a little bit raised, and I was really struggling to move my neck from side to side. And so I told my team, I said, look, you know, my, my neck's really sore, like, could someone look at it? And they just said, for goodness sake, Alex, your neck's not fractured, come on, you can move it now. And I was like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm not being taken seriously. And I, I continued to try mentioning it, you know, it was getting worse by the day. And um, there was this... One that, and I appreciate. And going off on tangent, you know, and going back to storyline here, you know, story time. But you know, it's important because it all kind of added up to be a disaster of a few days. Um, but I again had one evening where my joints had dislocated, and I pressed for the, the call bell for help. And this nurse came and just said, "I could be doing lots of other things right now. I could be seeing lots of other patients, but no, instead I'm standing here in front of you." and i just said you know and i was weak i i just didn't have the energy to argue but i just said please you know you wouldn't you wouldn't do that to another patient you wouldn't leave them in pain would you and they said yeah but we're not talking about other patients we're just talking about you and i felt very small and worthless and more powerless than i well you know already was and so this nurse disappeared and and you know i want to make it very clear that you know okay there were unfortunately the odd person here and there that weren't nice and maybe it was due to the pressures of COVID and just the system at the time but on the whole I had some incredible incredible nurses they were so lovely and you know I'm you know I made good friends with them and, and they meant everything to me um, and they did everything in their power to keep me as happy and as comfortable as possible but obviously on this occasion it 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 wasn't to be and so I waited 10, 15 minutes, you know, hoping that another nurse would, you know, answer my call bell. But unfortunately, it was the same person and who just came and just basically switched it off and walked out the room again. And so at that point, I'm thinking, well, I'm going to have to move myself. And so I heaved myself over with the, you know, pulling onto the side rail. Um, and then I put the side rail down so I could stick my leg out because it was it was dislocated but of course didn't realise the call bell was attached to the side rail so that swung back and so I tried to lean over a little bit more just to reach it, to get it back and of course because my leg was hanging out I fell out of bed and I was on the floor for about 20 minutes waiting for people to notice and uh, come and pick me up and of course because of my nutritional status being quite poor they were worried that I'd maybe fractured something so, I was hoisted back into the bed put i was put on a, a spinal board and in a neck collar um but instead of it being like a twenty minute wait for the porters, I ended up waiting like i think it was like four hours but in this time i was I was vomiting, but I was on my back, and there was no one there to turn me over or like tip me to my side, so I was basically vomiting back into my mouth and choking, and you know but it actually turned out to be fine, you know everything taken off and and blah blah but the following day, um, I was just, I was not well, I had a fever, my neck was even more sore, um, I was kind of coughing and grunting and and then um, I think they did my temperature and it was something like 41 and they were like, whoa, what's going on? And so I was was taken down for an urgent CT in the middle of the night, and they realised I had septic blood clots, so sepsis, in the area where the central line was. Um, And I'd, like, kind of aspirated on the vomit um, from the previous day. But, you know, it just goes back to the the whole reason for this story, is that I had said days before that my neck was sore. I had told them that my neck was... It was warm, it was really stiff, it was painful... And they just told me, for goodness sake, your neck's not fractured. Come on, stop being a drama queen kind of thing. So they didn't take me seriously. Had they taken me seriously from that day, we might have avoided another raging septic mm. infection. But unfortunately, because I'm a young female patient and nothing I said that w- was taken seriously, it was left to the point that I was delirious. I apparently rang my parents saying I was doomed. I don't remember doing this. But I was. I was sick. I was really, really sick and was because no one listened to me you
0: know I can't imagine you know I was having a conversation with a friend of mine the other day who's having a difficult time kind of medically and we Mm. were talking about resilience yeah and she was saying you know I feel like I've run out (laughs) kind Mm -hmm. of thing you know I feel like I'm, I'm I'm running low and I can't find it kind of thing yeah and I think that that sort of You know, that that when you're in those depths kind of thing, (laughs) yeah, to to kind of come back from that, Mm. you know, it's just...
1: I don't even know how. And I get it. I absolutely can't empathise with that 110% because I I got to the point too that I was exhausted Um, because you're not only fighting for yourself, but you're fighting to be heard. You're fighting for the same, you know, kind of care that you should be receiving from other people but it just got to a point where I was like do you know what and I still say this to this day if people don't care about me I'm going to stop caring about Mm. myself Mm. eventually and I have unfortunately got to that point where you know yeah I'm a lot better than what I was you know from when I was in the hospital but I'm still living with these chronic conditions I still I still have my really bad days and um unfortunately because i was in a hospital in wales I and mean, when i was transferred to a hospital in england i have completely completely slipped from the system between nhs wales and nhs england so i do not have i mean i have a feeding tube but i don't have a gastroenterologist you know i have i'm on 24/7 oxygen but i don't have a respiratory consultant it's madness and then you just think how many other patients have completely slipped from the mm. system You know, And people are like, well, you need to go back to the GP. You need to sort this out. And I said, well, hang on a minute. I have spent the last two years trying to get the care. I mean, I'm worse than what I was Mm -hmm. before I came in in the first place. And doesn't that say something? You know, you are going to get to a point where you're just exhausted. And I think, well, do you know what? I'm just going to completely ignore it. But then it ends up, you're kind of in a position where you start neglecting yourself. And I found that, you know, obviously, you know, that I was in the hospital the other week. Because, again, I had the early signs of sepsis. But it took it took three different people, like an NHS 111, the GP, to tell me I really had to go to A&E. And I, I, I said to them, I said, I'm not going to any hospital. I am not seeing any doctor. Because I had been so traumatised, Sophie, from the gaslighting and not being taken seriously, that i just stopped caring for myself. And it's horrible. And I know it's irresponsible, but it's just... It's where I'm at in life, mm. and so I completely, completely empathise with your mm. friend. You know, resilience isn't plentiful It is going to run out. You know, and, and we all have a battery. And is it if it's not charged up by other people's compassion and and reminders that you know you are being, we are trying to look after you or we are looking out for you, then you are just going to get to a point. Where you think, what, what, what's the point? Mm. It's depressing.
0: <laughs> it's super depressing but it's it's so so relevant you know it just it's it's so clear how you know mental health right across the board you Mm -hmm. know is just in in the work that i do we're seeing more cases than ever of Mm -hmm. you know people who have attempted suicide yeah really yeah an extraordinary number i've never known anything like it and Mm -hmm. you know we're not working for a suicide prevention or a mental health charity it's a spinal Mm -hmm. injuries charity but you know it's rife it's you know it's everywhere and
1: and people talk about this taboo of mental health and and actually it's down to people not wanting to or maybe being embarrassed or ashamed to raise those concerns about their mental health but actually I don't think it's that I think it's the system you know there are so many like myself you know I, I asked for mental health help I couldn't get it because the system is completely in chaos again to nobody's fault of their own but resources time money it that that's the big reason why you know so many people's mental health is just being sort of brushed under the mm. carpet and it's, it's just
0: not good enough really. It's not it's not. Tell me kind of I mean having heard what you've been through you mm. know sort of been doing lots of voice notes and things like that over the last couple of years I guess Mm -hmm. um and and seeing you now you know we've we've been kind of up to up to a few things you know in (laughs) London and and in you know elsewhere and it's been just amazing to see you and you really in many ways wouldn't know yeah really you know you seem um kind of like you've come back to life in a way I've got my happy face back on yeah happy clothes (laughs) Um, but you know also in terms of your life and what's what's going on um update us what's so what's happening I mean
1: I don't even know how I've managed to get to where I am but somehow somewhere along the lines I just I think I kind of something just a light just switched on you know back on inside of me sort of maybe March time this year I suddenly realized that, you know, I, A, I had to accept that this is what's happened, that, you know, this, this is how it is. And, you know, it was also a fact of, well, actually, if I do want to get back on track, then the only person that can, can do that and can change that is me. So I think I just kind of got up one morning and said, right, now I've got to snap out of this. I need to be proactive, deal with what I'm dealing, dealing with and almost just embrace it. So, I mean, it's been a hell of a time trying to liaise with medical school and just trying to get my life back in order. And, you know, I am I am still struggling with a lot of things in the background, you know, financially, you know, I'm struggling with rent at the moment, you know, all kind of like life adult problems. Um, but long story short, I've managed to get back to medical school and I'm now you know, kind of almost on a period of catch-up placement. Um, and I must be honest, It to begin with, it was really, not awkward, but it was very overwhelming because I obviously had to go back to the hospital where I spent many, many months as a patient. Um, but it's just, it's just that feeling, it's just so invigorating and, and refreshing. And, you know, I've got, I've had that renewal of life, so to speak. You know, I know that I'm back on track you know, towards my dream of becoming a doctor now and yeah okay it means I've had to go back a year and you know there's been delays there's been setbacks but setback doesn't mean failure you know we're all on our own and and at the end of the day I, f- I did feel like I was falling behind but then I had to just remind myself and say well actually nobody's falling behind because we're not following anyone and nobody's following us you know it's our own journey alone and so if I want to you know have a pit stop on the on the hard shoulder then yeah if I wanna get the map out and, and sort of like, you know, reevaluate my route, then so what? And um so I think in that sense it's just having that positive mindset and so actually it could've been way worse. You know, I could have not been able to go back to medical school altogether and then that would have been it. But you know what, I am back and you know, I've I've got my job as a ironically a phlebotomist uh, to help me with my rent and I mean I didn't want to mention that to people I haven't mentioned it to many people because I mean I've already set the internet off by saying I'm deafblind medical student imagine if I said I was a deafblind phlebotomist everyone's asking well how could she possibly stick a needle in in someone if she's if she's blind I said well actually that's that's kind of my job on the side I get paid for it you know <laughs> it's brilliant it's so funny but um but yeah so I did um I obviously have tried to get back into using social media a little bit and i and, and i kind of apologized for being off the radar because of you know my illnesses and stuff but i did a kind of a, a return to medical school post and i had tiktok on my my phone background but i've never really used it and i thought what what's the point of this you know i just watch funny videos to pass the time And I thought, no, I'm going to do a cheesy little video. It's kind of, it's got that don't give up message behind it. You know, it was kind of a, you know, it was kind of a clip of me before all of this. And then there was just this massive montage, quick, you know, playing fast forward through what has been the most hellish two years of my life. And then at the end of it, I'm back in my scrubs. I've got my stethoscope back around my neck. and, And it's just kind of a message well, you know, whatever you go through, if you've got self belief and determination, you know don't give up because you can get there and um and obviously because I've been off the radar for that period of time there's a lot of people who have since started following me that didn't realize I was a the UK's first deafblind person trained to be a doctor so then of course I everything just blew up I mean that went viral um and um and people were like, hang on a minute, how how can you be a doctor if you're deafblind?" And, you know, most people are really positive about it. They said, oh, this is really interesting, you know, would love to hear more how you do things. But then, of course, you're always going to get the other people who are... You know, you get the ignorant people who are just obliviously ignorant, if that makes sense. So they... They don't understand, but they're open to changing their perspectives and their opinions if you educate them. Mm. And then you've got the other half of the ignorant that just no matter how many you know times you try and educate them, they just, they just don't want to know. And you've got to take that with a pinch of salt because there are going to be people that just won't change and they're just not very nice people. And that's fine, um, you know, just not to engage with that. But, mm. yeah, so I thought, well, do you know what? TikTok seems a pretty cool app like you know I don't know what I'm doing here I don't know how to use it I don't know how to make a video I mean I'm visually impaired at the end of the day like what am I doing um but yeah I ended up I ended up making a few kind of misconception and myth busting videos which you know I try and make informative but also fun um and yeah it's just I went from I think I went from like 60 followers to like 48000 overnight oh which is just mental and then obviously with something like that then you can you get people saying oh can you come on my show and can you come and do this interview and um so yeah I've done a few media appearances just to kind of share my story so it's it's kind of I've just fallen back into that advocacy role again really and obviously returning to medical school is a biggie as it is Mm -hmm. and that is my priority I, I really need to you know get my head down and focus on that but it's nice to be back on you know, on sort of on stage doing, you know, having that role of speaking up for others, because, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, these last two years have taught me no one knows what's going to happen tomorrow, you know, it could be the end, just no one knows. And I know that's quite a dark, a dark thought, but it just means that, you know, it might be that I don't end up qualifying, or it might be that, you know, I qualify and then I decide I don't want to kind of spend the rest of my life in the Mm. NHS, it might be that I decide to do other things like, you know, my writing on the side of being a doctor. But if by doing this, it helps, you know, even just one person out there, you know, whether they're deaf, blind, deaf, blind, disabled, you know, whatever, who, who has a dream and they're doubting that dream because of maybe some limitations that have been put up to them in this world, if I can change that one person's life by reassuring them that things are possible and they are doable despite, you know, whatever your circumstances are, then then my job's done and I'm happy with that.
0: Love that. Love that. So much of what you've said is just so kind of valuable. And Mm. clearly, you know, you're you're the sort of person that's able to step back and Mm. think about, you know what you've learned and and reframe and things like that. Mm. What would you say? I mean, you've, you've given some really good kind of examples of that, but what would you say in, you know, particularly in this, this period and, and as you go back into medical school, which, Mm. you know, so far, like we spoke about last time, you know, it hasn't been an easy, easy road necessarily. You know, there have been, you know, people with assumptions and things like that. Mm. Um, What, what, what do you bring forward to kind of, to help you, you know, keep going? That is a really good question.
1: I mean, I've always said, you know, kind of the, I think I said this in our previous podcast episode, you know, the whole idea of, you know, it's better to try and fail than fail to try because you don't want to live with the regret of, of not knowing how capable you really are. But I think right here, right now, the message is simple. Just, just, you know, don't give up. If you've, If you've got a dream and a goal, then you will find a way. It might require a lot of adapting, um, and a lot of compromising, um, but, you know, it's 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 doable. And, and I think, you know, yeah, it's been a hellish two years and there are a lot of things that I really wish, in hindsight, that I didn't have to go through, nor anyone else, you know, like my family as well. But I think the only way of moving forward after such a major dip you know, I think is just to try and see if, if anything, any light at all in what I've been through. Um, so again, it just goes back to just being positive and optimistic and actually trying to see these bad experiences, this bad chapter of my life as a lesson learnt. well, you know, I think, you know, embracing what you've been through, uh, embracing the traumas, um, using them using your lived experience as a superpower because honestly yeah it's been tough but I try and sort of picture myself as that soon-to-be doctor and the patients that I will be treating you know maybe I can use my lived experiences to help them with a bit of a bit of extra compassion and Mm. empathy that I have gained through my hard times Mm. so I'd say just use your your downfalls your traumas you know whatever as a as a learnt lesson and a superpower,
0: mm, I'm completely with you. You know, that's been a real big learning for me over the past year. Is really about kind of reframing. You mm. know, situation can be very dark, and you know, for some people in that place, you know, particularly a place, mm. you know, which can result in trauma. You know, that's that's a a big, complicated, yeah dark, dark thing, whatever it might be. Mm. But you know, we all have. A choice and we all have yeah. kind of the power to to reframe and look at it in yeah. a different way and like I say it's really really difficult to do mm. that when you're in it but it is but it's learning
1: it. how to, to to live with it how to use it how to deal with it because you know these things aren't going to go away but it's just how you use it as a kind of an accessory to life if that makes sense
0: yeah love that <laughs> Oh. I like my accessories. <laughs> yeah,
1: she does I got my, my little, little yellow bag and my you know. As you came into my dots. flat this
0: evening, I was like, you need to do some fashion oh, content. Oh, I'd love that. Honestly, your, your <laughs> fashion is on point. I remember describing you in the in the first episode and I had like literally a list of all of the different things that you were. Um, and yeah, looking forward to the book when that, when that comes. Because uh, you yes. are the most beautiful writer. Yes,
1: I'm looking. I mean, it's been... I think again going back to the book it was I had so much written down but obviously so much has happened since so I just feel like it I think it needs needs and deserves an extra few chapters so I, I am going to be working on it and but I will keep you in the loop
0: mm, please do <laughs> amazing one absolute joy to to have you back on <laughs> oh, the original you, it's so good to see you again been listening to a life less ordinary with me sophie elwiz if you enjoyed this episode please feel free to hit follow on spotify or subscribe on apple podcasts and if you know anyone who you think would enjoy or benefit from listening please share it with them too thanks so much for listening and see you next time